For those of you that don't know me, my name is Saju Matthew, and I'm one of the elders of the church, and I have the joy of uh, bringing the God's Word to you this morning. Uh, part of it is um, filling in because our pastor, Nick, uh, got sick uh, this past week, so uh, please keep him in your prayers. Uh, he had actually been traveling last week, so he was away. He went to a conference, and he had gone to an Acts 29 church, so I know that he's got some great stories of... Uh, of things that he's seen and, and, and on his journeys, but I think the, the trip exhausted him and got him sick, so uh, I'm filling in for him this morning. So let's just keep him in prayer. We will continue uh, what we have been doing over the past several months, which is continue studying through the book of Acts. And so today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9, uh, starting at verse 19. So that's where we are going to pick up again. Um, before I read that, let me just set the the background of where we're at. So chapter 9 is when we're introduced to Saul's conversion story. So last week, we had the opportunity to find out about how this man, Saul of Tarsus, carrying papers, journeying all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus, which is somewhere about 150 miles of journey, but very determined to find anyone that is Jewish that even may have scattered from the area of Jerusalem and were no longer uh, holding true to the tenets of Judaism, but we're now speaking about Jesus and speaking what he would consider apostate teaching. He had papers to find them, arrest them, and kill them. And it was on that trip that he meets the Lord himself, right? And it's that story that we all know of where Saul falls down and he is blinded and he spends three days in Damascus, both blind and not being able to eat anything until a disciple named Ananias comes and heals him, and literally scales fall off of his eyes. So that's the precursor of where we're at this morning. So let me just pray, and then we'll read the scripture text together. <clears throat> Father, one day we will meet Saul, Paul, and he can tell us a story himself. But today, um, we lean on Luke's writing, the scripture that you preserve for us, and help us to know more than just this person, but help us to know your heart and your words for us this morning. Something that you have left on the table for us to feast on, that is um, designed for us in a very specific way for who we are, where we are in our life, what our needs are, Lord. So I pray that your spirit would meet us, that your spirit would refresh us, and Lord, that your word would give us direction and boldness to be your ambassadors to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start from verse 19 of chapter 9 and go all the way to verse 31. So you'll see it on the screen. So feel free to read it together. So it's, a, it's quite a bit, so let's see if we can together keep up with about uh, 12 verses. It says, And taking food, he was strengthened. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. 
They were watching the gates days and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him to a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, so this is the account of immediately after Paul is healed, immediately after the scales fall off and he has this engagement with disciples. It begins by telling us that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And so what do you do? What does a person do after something so dramatic? You have experienced a, a, a direct contact with Jesus himself. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he experiences this physical uh, 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 blindness and something, something so, so overwhelming that happens. And, and three days later, he's healed. So imagine the course of these three days, what's taking place for him, what he's experiencing. He's experiencing the God himself. He's experiencing this inability to see. And then all of a sudden, he experiences a miracle of healing, right? And so what does a person like this do? Well, here it is in verse 20. It tells us, at once he began to preach in the synagogue, right, that Jesus is the Son of God. The very first thing that Paul does once he knows the truth is he goes out to the synagogues, the synagogues where he was actually carrying the letters to find anyone that was actually preaching about Jesus, the letters that he had to arrest them, he was now a vessel of speaking about Jesus himself. It's, it's actually a beautiful picture because you, you see Paul in some ways as a man on fire, right? He's just experienced the power and the reality of God, and he's overwhelmed by what he's just experienced. He can't stay quiet. And the truth is now clear to him. He's discovered the whole truth of what the scripture is about. It's about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who made us. He's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. All that he's missed, he now realizes, and he's just so, so, so overwhelmed with this that he can't help but run out there and tell people the, the beautiful story of who Jesus is, right? And it is a great picture of a new believer, somebody who's just coming to know, oh my gosh, like I had no idea that's the meaning of this world. I had no idea this is how all this fits together, but he has a conversion experience, a total transformation experience, and he can't help help but speak. He can't stay silent. You know, and you can see Saul's heart, right? His heart is very much for the Israelites. Saul is going to be, as God calls him, an apostle to the Gentiles. But Saul has been raised as 
a, a Jew in every way. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. From a young age, he studied the text. He spent time learning and committed to these things, right? And so this, even though God will send him out, and the story goes on where he goes out to the Gentiles, his heart for his own nation, for his people, never ceases. In fact, there's a, there's a verse in Romans chapter 9 where he cries out and he says, what I wouldn't give for Israel to know the truth and know their Messiah. And so he's, his heart is for the people. And when he realizes that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-awaited Messiah, he can't help but just run out into the synagogues and, and proclaim that. But in verse 21, we see the way the people reacted. All those who heard him, it says, were amazed and said, wait a minute, isn't, isn't this the man who, who made havoc in Jerusalem for, for the people that actually called on Jesus' name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose where he is trying to kill them? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And so the people are just confused by this. They're like, wait a minute, none of this makes sense. This guy who was so determined to make sure that they wipe out, wipe out anyone who preached about Jesus, anyone who was a people of the way, which is the early way that Christians were referred to. In fact, he was part of so much of the persecution already. The stoning of Stephen, the letter sent out for so many that were killed and that. So people can't wrap their head around this. And I'm trying to find a way to help us relate because some of the challenges of a Bible story in some ways is that it can seem a little bit wooden to us, you know? And one of the things I would encourage you, if you haven't done that, is just a little plug for The Chosen. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it. In one way, because it really sort of brings to light the reality of that day what it's like to live in a country where you're occupied by another, by, another, by another group of people and where freedom of movement and those kinds of things were quite limited, right? And you didn't have the kind of ability to, to do what you wanted to. And you see, you see the way, uh, you know, these things, these things operate. And so to use a, a modern-day example, I may say it this way. Imagine the leaders of our political parties flip-flopping, and all of a sudden you find President Obama is the keynote speaker of the Republican Party convention. <laughs> or President Trump is actually putting the strategy together for how the Democratic Party platform should be, right? Like, you would say, what? That makes no sense. That None of that was the way, where, where did that come from, right? And I just want you to get a little bit of the context of the fact that when Paul goes up and speaks this and says this, they are completely astounded. They have no idea what is going on right now. This man was on the opposite side of, of, of the conversation here. His position was completely polar opposite, and now he's preaching this, right? And so they didn't, they didn't know what to do. But then in verse 21, I mean, verse 22, it goes on to say that Paul grew more and more powerful, right? Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
Now, there's a little bit of time gap that's missing here in the way Luke records this. Luke sort of takes a huge uh, uh, amount of time and condenses it over the course of these 11 verses. But most likely what happened was that Paul is in, or Saul at the time, is in Damascus and he's preaching and he's saying this, what we saw in verse 20, 20 and 21. And then it seems, according to the way he writes in Galatians, that most likely he headed out and he went to, uh, he went to Arabia, right? It says here that, and this is what, what Paul himself says, he says that after his conversion, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but I went immediately into Arabia and then later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. So Luke doesn't put all of that details in here, but what probably is happening in this account, in this story, is that Paul is somehow in Damascus, but probably spent a considerable amount of time away in Arabia, right? So when it says in this, after some time, he grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews, my, my sense is that this might be, and, and the scripture isn't clear, somewhere in one of these verses is this number of years, and, and the likelihood that he spent quite a long time in the desert in Arabia. It doesn't tell us what he did, it doesn't tell any of that, but then it says he returns back, and then while he's in Damascus, he's preaching again, and then we see the attack that he has, right, and then he goes to Jerusalem. But in Galatians, Paul tells us it was actually three years later, after my conversion, that I actually go to Jerusalem, but the text here may, may sound like it happened all back to back to back. So there's this gap of time. And what we see is that Paul is probably equipping himself, right? He's probably studying this. I'm sure that he went and looked over all the Old Testament, all the scriptures that he had and said, if I insert Jesus into this, how does this make sense now? What does that mean? And, and he's, he's poured himself in spending time and in doing that and looking at um, looking at the scriptures. And so he comes back equipped and knowledgeable and prepared and ready. And he wants to continue to have dialogue with the Jewish people, especially those in the synagogues in Damascus. But in verse 20, uh, 22, it says that as he grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews uh, in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He tried to find a way to explain in, in logical terms, in proof that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Right? And in the next verse it says, and they, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So you see the way the, the tables had turned, because the more and more now Saul is preaching this, it seems like the, 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 the storm is gathering against him. And in some ways, I think Saul would have thought, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in a Pharisee. I'm a religious leader, right? I have special access to these people. These are my peers. These are my friends. They know me. I've, I've engaged in that. I probably spent time in, in schools and studied with them together. Maybe some of them are his classmates. And so he assumes that because of that, he can just go and and spend time talking to them, communicating with them, and explaining the truth. But it just doesn't seem to be true, right? None of the things that he says seems to be resonating with it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, here's what it says. In terms of, in terms of killing him, it says, At Damascus, the governor under King Ar Arteus 
was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. So this is not just a group of people sort of getting all worked up and saying, you know what, let's go get that Paul. No, I'm Saul at the time, right? This is actually an order by the governor. They had actually issued a decree, they had made a plan, and they had plotted to, for the fact that he will, he will have to be killed. It was so serious, so dangerous, that the only way for him to escape was literally in the middle of the night being lowered in a basket and somehow sneaking out, you know, to save his life. All of Saul's proofs, all of his smart teachings did nothing to change the thinking of these Jewish leaders. Instead, what they wanted to do was kill him. They saw him as somebody that needed to be put and made silent. Why is it that Paul, one, no, Saul, sorry, I'm going to say back and forth, Paul and Saul. Uh, why is it Saul having a relationship with them, being in community with them, knowing them, and then coming to them saying, look, let me use facts, let me use logic, let me use the very scriptures that you have always held sacred to show you evidence and reason that Jesus really is the one that's been talked about. But all of that was ignored. It's really interesting that, that proof, and, and, and the text uses the word, he was proving that Jesus is the Christ. Proof didn't seem to matter. Evidence didn't seem to take hold. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that today. What is it underneath that? But I'm reminded of the story that Jesus says about the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that story? Right? Both had died. And it says that Lazarus, who was a poor man, who was begging at the table of the rich man and eating scraps of food that would fall from the table, went to Abraham's bosom right, to be with him. But the rich man was sent to Gehenna, was sent to hell. And there's a conversation that the scripture records between Lazarus, I mean the rich man and Abraham. And the conversation is basically, first he asked for some water because I'm thirsty, just even a drop of water. But then the rich man something says something. I have brothers. I forget the number. I think, I think he says, I have five brothers. Can you please send Lazarus back so he can tell them so they're not here in this situation, in this situation like me? And Abraham some, says something pretty profound and pretty sad. He says, even if a man were to return from the dead, they're not going to believe it. Even if a man were to come back to life, return from the dead, and speak about this, they're not going to believe it. You know what? There's this stubbornness of our hearts that's not always there because evidence and information isn't sufficient. It's just the posture of who we are. We hold on to things, we hold on to positions that it's not really something that information can in any way influence or impact. And it's quite interesting to see that Paul or Saul being so learned and having all of this information didn't seem to be able to reach them at all. 
And I think it's important for us maybe to spend a little bit of time looking at the way our hearts are, right? And what is it that keeps us in the state that it's in? You know, and, I, and, I, and I'll get a little bit, little bit uh, spicy here, but look no further than our present times because this same phenomenon really does exist. And in some ways, it saddens me to see the, the state of our own nation today, the sharp divide that exists in the way that the world, as this nation, is engaging with one another. And it just feels in many ways, and maybe it's my perception, but the, but the divide is only getting sharper, that the divide is only getting wider and wider apart. Things like dialogue or joint sort of efforts of working together or compromises don't seem to be options as much as it used to be, you know, when I was younger. Ideology, the ideological pull is strong in both directions, in multiple directions. And the pull is something that, you know, in many ways we palpably feel. Any one of you that has any social media or watch the news or that kind of stuff, you can see it. You can see the, the, the strong pull. So I say to you here, Saul was a person in their community circle. He was probably a friend. He was probably a respected friend. And here's the thing that I'm wondering. But when ideology, when his ideology no longer matched their ideology, he stopped being a person. He became a danger. He became a problem to eliminate. It's important, I think, for us to understand the way that we can dehumanize each other because the pull of ideology makes us forget that these are still individuals, these are still human beings. And we see the way that a nation in, in Israel is being pulled apart as well. What's happened 2,000 years ago, we see the way it's, it's, it's being pulled apart. It's so dangerous in many ways, I think, as we, as we demonize or other an entire community. Because now, Saul was the other. Saul was no longer someone that says, wait a minute, I know you. You care about Yahweh. You worship Yahweh. You've been faithful to these things. Tell me more about why it is that you're saying these things. Let's talk about it. Something gotten into your mind and are you all messed up? Or show me what's going on. That, 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 that othering has the ability to no longer need to listen. No longer does any of the proofs, he says. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ, but none of those things seemed to have any, any weight anymore. It didn't matter because they were actually moving in the other direction of now saying, we need to kill this guy. Right? We need to eliminate this guy. So I have two questions that I want us to spend a little bit of time on. What motivates this thinking, this behavior? What, what triggers, what motivates this kind of thinking, this othering thinking? And what's our responsibility as Christians? What are we supposed to do? You know, I think the one thing that I would say is, and I'm sure there's, there's multiple things you can put your fingers on, but I see something in the text here. One of the things that motivates this is fear. There is something very powerful about being afraid. And fear can actually turn to anger. Take a look at, take a look actually, because these people, you know, were hearing something that didn't fit the narrative that they wanted. Take a look at verse 26. 
in fact. Because later we'll see that when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and guess what? They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. And look again in verse 29, what it says here. And this is him speaking in Jerusalem, Saul, and he says, when he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. So <laughs> Saul has nowhere he can turn to, nowhere he can go to, right? Those folks in Damascus and the synagogues want to kill him. The disciples don't want to have anything to do with him. They're afraid. And then as he's preaching to, to, to the Hellenists or the, uh, what's called the Grecian Jews, they're now starting to plot to kill him. They have no interest in him either. I say fear because it says in there, right, of how the disciples themselves are afraid. But I think when something that matters to you, something that you hold with great sacredness, seems to be being pulled, right, there's a, there's a certain way that we can react, and, and fear is one of the ways that sometimes we're motivated by. You see, when the religious leaders wanted to eliminate Jesus, what did they do? They just dialed up the fear. They dialed up the language, and there was a chanting of, of, of to kill Jesus and to free Barabbas, right? It was that, that use, it was that the... The use of fear as a power tool to control or to trigger people is something quite dramatic. And you know who knows this quite well? Saul. Saul had been using fear for the longest time. He was zealous for this. He was going to do whatever it takes. He watched Stephen die, and he wanted other believers to watch that and be afraid that this is something that can happen to you as well. You know, I think, I think the ability of, of being motivated by fear, both in society but also in ourselves, and I say in society because I could come back to the way our, our nation is functioning. And I look at the way the story is told in news outlets. You know, in, in many ways I find it very opportunistic because they're able to ratchet up the fear factor. Because guess what happens when it's sensationalized? The fear factor is high. The ratings are high. It drives people to react. And it's very easy for, for, for somebody to say it in the way, if you fill in the blanks, if this party wins majority, then fill in the blank, right? If this person gains office, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? If this bill passes, oh my gosh. Not that there isn't merit and weight and substance behind those things, but when the operating motive is fear, you find something very dangerous. And you know, one of the things that I've actually been trying to avoid is some of the social media because you just, uh, uh, you just find that it has become a, a real sad place in some ways where it used to be about just sharing pictures and stories and, and having conversations. But in many ways, it's become a place of, of pulling ourselves further and further to the extremes, right? And here's the, the trick about it. I won't know about it, and you may not know about it, because my feed on my social media represents what I believe in. So everything that I click on, they know, okay, so give, give him more of that, give him more of that, give him more of that. So I'm getting more of that, and I'm thinking, I must be so smart and so right, because everybody else <laughs> thinks this way, and it must be the weird, crazy people over on the other end who are thinking that way. But the power of appealing exclusively to a base 
right? I mean, I, I personally think one of the one of the vilest things exists in some ways is is Twitter, because it's the ultimate way to dehumanize a person, right? You can have these conflict it's like it's like you're looking for a fight that you actually don't have a thing in but you're like oh well somebody said this let me go here and now start attacking that and you're not a person they won't ever see you you won't ever meet each other but you can use this medium to just tear each other apart and you see the power of those things i say this and i and i want us to consider this i, I i'm processing this and i want to understand it more but i do think there's a strong correlation between fear and worship because that which you fear reveals that which you worship. Another way that I can explain it is in my own work. So I work for a, a, a nonprofit mission organization called International Justice Mission, IJM. And what we do is we work in countries around the world on issues like slavery and trafficking and violence against children and women and police abuse of power, all, all, all these different issues. And one of the things that we actually experience, and I personally have experienced, is the ability to go and see somebody who's actually in slavery and then set them free. I mean, we say these things all the time, but you know, there are 40 million some plus people in slavery today, which means we are living in a time of the greatest amount of slaves in the history of the world. In so many parts of the world, slavery is still such a huge problem. And, you know, one of the things that shocked me when I had a chance to go on what we have is a rescue operation um, and meet people that were in slavery is that there were no chains. There were no walls. I was like, didn't understand. Like, how is it that that you're able to hold all these people in this captivity and use them for labor when you don't have any locks and chains and, and any of those kinds of things. And it was pretty quick to realize it's the power of fear, right? The power of fear, the power of showing authority. And we would learn stories of how one person tried to run away and the owners and the slave masters would catch them because they really just didn't have any influence or ways to get anywhere and they would publicly bring them back inside of the, the, the work facility and beat them in front of everybody. That's going to send a message that nobody else should try that. You don't need walls. You don't need change when you can manipulate people here and keep them triggered and afraid. And it's been in, in quite, quite powerful for me personally just to see the way that individuals are... are entire lives are kept in this kind of a situation because they feel like they have nowhere to go and no way to make it so they just stay in that situation so so i would say you know one of the things that we can keep in mind is fear is a powerful and dangerous motive another example that i would give is that it, and i we've seen this with our work is that often great efforts are made to build schools and because education is a great way for people in villages and very, very tough places to get out of that circumstances. And you know, the, the, the quality of the schools sometimes that are built in, in some poor villages are, are really beautiful. You can go in and you'll see 
even computers and state-of-the-art equipment and those kinds of things that are built. And, and, and we've seen this in, in, in a number of places where you find, because education is a way to lift you out. And it's free education that, that lots of organizations want to give. But people notice this very interesting phenomenon, which is somewhere around when a family's daughter turns about 12 years old, she just stops attending school. She doesn't come in, and the, and the teachers and the organization that were working on this couldn't understand. It's like, what's going on here? Like, this is, this is, this is great. And that person was probably you know, doing well in school and, and succeeding, but they were no longer coming in around that time. And it just seemed to happen, not just in one situation, not in one place, but in many places. After a while, and it took a long time, but here's what people found out. The most dangerous place for a young girl who's 12 years old or in that age is the walk to school and the walk back from school. So parents and, and them were making a very difficult choice, education or safety, right? Fear is powerful. And, and there are authentic things for us to be afraid of, real things, but the power of the way that it shapes us and grips us and directs our actions is, is very real. I think it's important, and I won't get into this, but I encourage you to analyze the way fear has been used in your own experiences, in your own journey, in your own life, and where that holds you back, where that tells you a certain narrative about who you are, what you're not capable of, what you shouldn't do. It's, it's, it's quite quite dangerous how destructive that is. So what's our role as Christians? What's our responsibility in this? I would say the first thing is always see the individual. Always see the person. There are lots of great things we can care about. The work that I do, I feel it's, it's caring about something that matters. But if the individual is lost in the midst of a cause, is that worth it. I can say that from a, from a marriage standpoint, for those of you that have been married. How many of you have won a fight and regret, regretted that you won it? <laughs> right? Because you can go all out to prove your point and win the fight. And at the end of the day, the relationship has been damaged. Is it worth it? And Jesus always saw the individual. Jesus was comfortable having a zealot and a tax collector as his disciple. I find that dynamic so fascinating. And again, I'll make a little plug for The Chosen, where it sort of brings it to life. But to, to realize the extent of when you say a zealot, Simon the Zealot, this is someone who says, if I have to kill for the sake of tearing down Rome, I will. I will. They were, they were completely committed completely committed to doing whatever it took because that was the enemy. And then you have a tax collectors who are completely in bed with trying to you know, promote Rome's uh, overtaxing and, and, and taking advantage of the people. And Jesus put them together and as, as a community of disciples. Can you imagine what those long walks when they travel from town to town were like? And, and a lot of them you'll find, there's, there's quite a bit of like, wow, that's an odd group to put together. 
But Jesus did, right? Because he always saw the individual. Jesus helped the Roman soldier whose daughter needed healing. He helped and spoke to the religious teacher when Nicodemus said, but, but what must I do to have this eternal life? He saw the poor widow who was putting in just two mites, because that's all she had, but she did it without any fanfare. Jesus always made sure that the individual was noticed and mattered. And that's what's so beautiful about Jesus' ministry. It was the first time you saw women being invited and being a part in, in the front lines of this work. You saw people from all different backgrounds, all different groups being invited and being a part of it. The second thing that I would say is maybe not all problems, not all issues are problems to solve, but tensions to manage, right? You know, it, there's a saying that says, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything around you, you see is a nail because you just feel like, well, that's, that's all I can do. I can hammer it down. I, I can just nail it down, right? But maybe not everything is a problem to solve. Maybe some things are tensions to manage. In, in our work, in my work that I do, you know, we have the internships that people can do. So once you graduate from college, people can go and be an intern for a year overseas in, in many different countries. And so we have this phenomenal experience of sending people out for one year where they do an unpaid internship and they're serving in, on the front lines of, of the work in helping people. And over and over again, we, I have had this experience when the intern class comes in and, you know, we, we, we send out uh, several times in a year a few hundred interns will go out all the time. One of the questions that come up, because they go to a developing countries, in developing countries where they research and, and they've looked at and they say, they ask me the question about beggars, people that beg. And their question is this, what do you recommend that I do when I see someone begging? And that's true. I don't know if you've been to you know, other parts of the world where you find you know, people that are, that are begging on the streets in large numbers. You know, you could get out of a, if you, if you get out of an airport and start walking to your car, in many countries you might find uh, a half a dozen or more people coming in and just begging, begging for something. If your car stops at an intersection, you'll find, find a whole flock of children and others begging for something. And their question was this, what do you recommend that I do? Because, should I give money or, or food or something to them because they're begging? But on the other hand, and this is why I said they researched and, and studied this, they said, you know, we also understand that a lot of this beggar is a racket. This beggary is a racket, which means they actually take people and it's controlled by an organized crime syndicate. And many times the kids are intentionally um, injured, their eyes are gouged out, or their, their legs, or those kind of things, so they appear particularly sympathetic, and then sent out to beg, and, and all the money that they collect is actually taken back, and this is actually quite true in a number of places, and the thing that they're wrestling with is, am I not just furthering this racket, meaning if they get money out of this, aren't they just going to try to bring in more kids and more kids, or should I just like completely not do it, and I get it, right, that's a tough question. I've never actually given them a, a clear answer. <laughs> here, here, here's, what I, here's what I've said to them. I've always, I just said this, look, I don't know what you're going to do. Some of you might give money, because that's what your heart is going to tell you. And others might say, you know what, 
that's not the right thing to do. I'm feeding into something more dangerous. But what God cares about is that you're wrestling with it so much, that it matters to you, that you're thinking about these things, that you're noticing those individuals and you're noticing those situations and you care about it and it's gripping you and you're going to spend a year uncertain what you should do and struggling in the midst of it. Maybe not all issues or problems are solved. Some of those things are just tensions to manage. And we as human beings who live in a world need to figure out how to differentiate the difference between the two because not all things are nails and not all things require a hammer. The third thing that I would say, and this is in verse 27, let's look at what it says there. It says, but Barnabas, and this is after uh, he comes to Jerusalem, Right, was, uh, Saul comes to Jerusalem. But Barnabas took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord. So he went in and out among Jerusalem, it says, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Notice something here. This guy Barnabas is introduced to us, right? And Barnabas's name actually means son of encouragement. Um, so it's, it's very fitting. It says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And Barnabas declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly. How does Barnabas know this? Probably because Barnabas spoke to Saul. Probably because while all the other disciples and others in Jerusalem are saying, hey, you know what, he's trying to join us, but we're afraid of him. I'm not sure he's a disciple. You trust he's a disciple? Well, while the tendency for people is to talk about a person, right? To go into your circles and says, okay, we'll get counsel from here. Barnabas took a different route. He said, what if I talk to the person? What if I go and just sit down and hear him tell me his story? What if I evaluate his own heart motive and his own thinking? Right? What if I understand it? Because, and then look what Barnabas does. Barnabas is the one who's taking Saul. The text tells us very clearly. And he brought him to where the apostles are. He's facilitating a dialogue. He's creating a conversation. I'd use this word. He's a bridge builder. Right? And it's not Saul who's explaining it in the way the text says it. What's happened to him? Barnabas knows this all. Barnabas has heard this all. And Barnabas says, I want to tell you the story. I'll, I know Saul's story enough that I can relay it to you, that I can tell you what that is. You know, I think one of the most important things is for Christians to be bridge builders, for Christians to be the ones that know how to bring disconnected people, disconnected communities together. You know, and there is, there is so much power in being a bridge builder. Again, I would just, just quickly mention, that's one of the things that we experience in the work that I do, which is we need broken, corrupt systems, untrained, ill-equipped systems, and people in the systems to do their job to protect these people, to rescue girls out of brothels and, and families out of slavery. But they don't do it. It doesn't happen. And when, when our organization goes in and we go in close, we realize, oh my gosh, there's actually a dialogue that you can facilitate, right? Some of them don't do it because they're corrupt, 
And that, that's just who they are, some of the officials. But others don't do it because they're like, I actually don't know. Nobody ever trained me in this. They gave me this job, and I don't know exactly how to do this well. So instead of making a fool of themselves, they don't do anything. And others, because they have some preconceptions about, oh, don't these people, isn't that, don't those girls go in there because that's what they want? Aren't these families poor? I mean, what else are they going to do? They have certain notions. They have preconceptions. But I will tell you the most powerful thing for me that I have seen is when you bring people in systems that you would say, you know what, write that system off, write those people off, they are useless. And you bring together girls who have been victimized and you put them in a room together and they have a dialogue. Oh my gosh, folks. I have seen over and over not a dry eye in the room when a girl stands up and tells her story. And those officers start to realize the realities of what this, the larger story is. Those officials realize that. And the change in attitude, the change in posture takes work. It's very easy to other. It's very easy to write off. It's very easy to pursue and assume. But it's a whole different thing when you bring people together under one umbrella and foster. I think as Christians, we need to figure out how we are bridge builders. Finally, and I'll close with this, what do we do with our tendency to be afraid? Because that's there in us, right? What do we do with this, this fearfulness? Well, let's look at what verse 31 says. <clears throat> so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Did you catch that? Walking in the fear of the Lord. Church, we are called to live in the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord. You know, one of the most frequently commanded uh, 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 statements in the Bible is the call to live in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because that which you fear reveals that which you worship. That which you fear reveals that which you hold in highest of highest of esteem. That which you fear when something is coming shows you that's what you're most protective of. That's what you care about. Jesus had something to say to his disciples as he was training them. In Matthew chapter 10, this is what he says. He said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Jesus says, look, the things of this world you may be afraid of, but God is sovereign. Right? The, the world can only hurt your body. That's all they can do. But your soul and your destiny and your future, that remains in the hand of God. Right? And scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is necessary, which means God, God is saying, look, these things matter. You love your children. You care about them. They mean everything to you. And you find ways to protect them. And you come after the things that might attack them. And that's a good thing. But nothing should replace our fear of God, our standing of where God stands higher above all of those things. Right? You see in the scripture when people come face to face with God, the way that the situation unfolds. Remember when Isaiah came face to face? He just fell down. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? John had so much to say, 
But in Revelation, he, he, he sees God face to face, and he just falls down and worships. Job had a ton of questions. He says, God, just tell me, I just, just give me a, tell me why you did this to me. Why? And he meets God, and God speaks to him, and Job doesn't have any more questions. He actually never gets his questions answered, but he doesn't have any more questions. Because all of a sudden, the majesty and the glory and the grandeur and the power of God, creator of the universe, all the power coursing through his veins became real. All of a sudden, our tininess becomes very apparent. And when we can live in clear-headed thinking that that's God, he made heaven and earth, he lives outside of time, there is nothing that can stop his mission, there is nothing that can stop him, None of these things that we are overwhelmed by should overtake us. Fear of the Lord results in knowing that we live quorum deo, that I live before the face of a holy God. Let's have the, let's have the, the worship band come up as we close, but I want to encourage you to pay attention to this. We must know God the King, God our Lord, God our Father, the one who is high and exalted, but is also the suffering servant, the God who hates sin, but he delights in forgiving sinners. When we get our perspective right, when our eyes know what's first and what's second, we're able to live in a, in a wise way in this world. And you see Paul... As he journeys on, he continues to pour deep in understanding that the only one that he lives for is the audience of God himself. That's who matters. That's the one that matters. And so all these other accolades and, 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 and um, titles and reputational positions that Saul has, he says, I count it all as rubbish. I count it all as nothing except for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ in his suffering, in his death and resurrection, right? When we come to understand and when our eyes are fixed on God and his holiness, and he is someone to be feared, as, as C.S. Lewis said in, in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Is he safe? No, he's not safe. No, he's not safe, but he's good. And I think that's where we need to live is with a little more awe, a little more sense of quorum deo. I'm living today in the presence of a holy God.